Hey, we are in media listeners. I hope you're all doing well today. Full disclosure, I'm in a different spot than I usually am for recording. So if I sound a little different, that's why. Um, maybe this is TMI, maybe not. But in my personal life right now, my husband's going back to school. Um, I'm really excited. He's studying to be a back-end programmer. So he's utilizing the office where I usually record. So until then, we might be you know, reconfiguring some things over on our end. Um, but all exciting and good stuff here. Of course, we have Brit, and uh, I think earlier you said there's construction happening outside of your house. Is that still the case, Brit? No, it's quiet. So fingers oh, crossed. Oh, good. <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, that said, it's yeah. Hi, thanks for, for joining us. Um, never a dull moment over here, but we're really excited. Um, so for today's episode, we're going to be talking with an executive editor in the retail and private brand space. So without further ado, Greg Sleater is the executive editor and associate publisher of Store Brands, which covers retail and private brand products. He's been in communications for over 30 years. Previously, he worked for several B2B and consumer-facing news outlets. And guess what? He's also worked in PR. Always love when we can get both sides um, with one person to kind of, you know, talk about it because they understand the whole picture. Um, so he worked in PR for two Long Island, New York-based healthcare systems. That's super cool. Uh, anyway, we're so happy you're here. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Jackie. I appreciate the invite. Of course. Um, so we'll go into later how I even found you. Um, but for now, let's kick things off. Usually the formatting is that we go over a story that stemmed from a PR pitch. Um, and I really love what you told me during our email correspondence. Also, my dog is whining in the background. Well, I'll take care of that in a minute, but for now. Uh, basically, when we were emailing, you said that really there's too many to choose from and there's no single PR pitch that really sticks out, so to speak. And I love hearing that because for me and probably for our listeners too, I think it gives us hope that we don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel or, you know, stick out in some extra extraordinary way. We just need to come to the table with relevant information and best best practices. So with that said, you were gracious enough to share a recent story beforehand. So if you could be so kind as to talk about the story and then how P a PR pitch came to start that story. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, to start it, it, keeping things simple is always the best way. Um, it's how I've gone through my career, both, you know, largely in journalism and even on the PR side, uh, you know, just don't overcomplicate things and, and understand your audience. And that goes, you know, for, for me as an editor, um, we know what who who our audience is, and it's the same on the PR side. Know who you're reaching out to. So the specific story that you're referencing, uh, it came through email, uh, and it was a, a PR firm representing a a coffee company uh, based in California. And the, there was a couple of things that were interesting. One, it's coffee, and that's obviously a major category uh, in the CPG world. And they were doing an exclusive line uh, at Whole Foods. So for us as, as Store Brands Magazine, we cover both store branded products that are proprietary to a retailer, but also exclusive products. So if a national brand decided to do uh, an exclusive product at a Kroger or a, a Costco, we would cover that because it's really focused on that one retailer. So really that, that hit the two, the two key elements for me was, was actually three key elements. Let me correct myself. One was 
It's a category we cover in coffee too. It's a retailer we cover was Whole Foods and three, um, it was an exclusive launch. And sort of the cherry on the Sunday, if you will, was that, that this was a company that was focused on uh, distributing uh, Vietnamese grown coffee, which is again, a, an unusual in the world of coffee. We think Central America, South America, uh, and even Africa for coffee, but Vietnam is a growing area of coffee. So in within the first two paragraphs, those kind of, there was a lot of check boxes there. Just this, this seems interesting. Um, and we just went with it again, something I probably would have never found out if it wasn't for the PR firm reaching out to me, but it really spoke to what we cover. So again, very simple in its approach. We were able to get an interview with the CEO, uh, and wrote up the story. So again, nothing, nothing complicated, you know, not re, as you mentioned, not reinventing the wheel, but again, I, I think the PR firm understood what we cover, who we cover, and that really just, it was an easy mesh. And then the PR firm, as PR firms do, uh, ends up being the condo with the setting up interviews and everything like that, which makes my life uh, much easier. So what did the, if you are able to pull up the pitch for yourself, no worries if not, but was there anything about the subject line that maybe stuck out to you? I imagine it was probably pretty relevant to the story itself, but I'm just curious what the contents of the If I remember was. correctly, and again, I, I the pitch is long gone, but if I remember sure. correctly, I think the subject line was uh, exclusive launch at Whole Foods, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so again, Whole Foods is a retailer we cover a lot. And the fact that there was an exclusive launch, that caught my eye. And, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Love it. Um, and then the P you've mentioned that the PR firm made your life easier because they coordinated everything. Um, I think you interviewed the founder, correct? Yeah, yes, I did. Yeah. The, the founder and CEO was the person who we interviewed. And again, it's a small company. So typically we would get, um, the CEO level or vice president of sales and marketing or somebody like that. But typically with smaller companies like this, um, you know, the CEO is rel readily available for interviews. Awesome. And I imagine the interview went pretty well. Um, do you ever, do you prefer with interviews like phone interviews? Do you ever accept email interviews? Like what does that look like process-wise? Yeah, we do everything. I, I mean, there are some that prefer questions. We'll send questions. Um, the challenge with that is always that inevitably I've got five, either, either I try to frame out the question in such a way where I'm anticipating okay. that there's not enough information. So I try to almost build in follow-up questions. Um, mm. and, and then sometimes I have to go back with either clarifications or follow-up questions. It's a little more time consuming. Um, now I, you know, I, I think I've done within the last three years, one phone interview, everything now is done via video interview on, you know, Google meet or teams or, or zoom. So we've transitioned away from the phone interview to really a face-to-face -face interview, which is, which is nice, nice because you're really looking at somebody and having that conversation sort of eye to eye. Um, the initial challenge was that of was we were, I was recording all those interviews because I don't want to have somebody look at the top of my head as I'm taking notes. Um, that just sort of defeats the purpose. And fortunately, Absolutely. our company, uh, our parent company, Ensemble IQ, we have a a service that will transcribe those interviews for us. So we just oh, have cool. to upload the the you know the recording, and then within a couple hours, we get the interview transcribed. So that saves a lot of time on our end. Um, so for the most part, that's what we do right now. Like I said, I try not, I try to discourage the, the email back and forth because again, it's more time consuming. Um, but, uh, but we'll do those if needed. 
Now, um, with interviews, are there any common like are there any common things that interviewees might do that are kind of no nos, or do you think for the most part the interviews you conduct are pretty straightforward and um, easy to be on the other side of it? I think for the most part they're straightforward. Um, and and what's what I've always found interesting, and and I feel like this is something I hear more of now than I heard maybe even five years ago was even if we're, if I'm doing an interview, people want some questions ahead of time um, just to get a sense of where the interview is going. And, and i more and more, I feel like people, maybe it's the video thing um, where they're they're They always tell me how they're nervous. And I'm, and I yeah. always <laughs> say to them, you know, you're the expert in this. Um, you know, if I'm talking about your company or your, or the category that you're in, you know, this stuff cold and all you're doing is talking to me. You know, you're, you're not in front of, you know, a million people on CNN or something like that. <laughs> just have a conversation with me and just, you know, hear, you know, this stuff cold. And usually by the second question, you know, and I and people will say, oh, my God, I've talked too much. And I say, listen, if there's a reporter in the world that ever says you talk too much, that's a problem. Because for <laughs> me, it's if my question's longer than the answer, then I've got a problem. So yeah. I love people who just go because usually that's when you get the best information, you get more depth. Sometimes they raise an issue that I haven't thought of. Um, so, you know, I love when people get chatty. That's cool. Um, speaking of, of CEOs and founders and interviewees being chatty, uh, we've had guests come on and mention that PRs sit in on the calls to kind of um, monitor or maybe even mediate or act as a moderator of the conversation. Does that happen frequently with you, Greg? Yeah, that, that happens, I think, all the time. And, and even in my my mm. time uh, as a PR person working with healthcare systems, um, we sat in on all the interviews. Um, mm. Some of it was, um, and especially when you're dealing with physicians and, and doctors who are brilliant people, um, they can get too chatty and sometimes get off course. So I can get them back on course. And other times... Um, you know, we'll even go over, like when I was in PR, we'd go over talking points and they'd forget one or two things. So then I would just at the end, jump in and say, you know, doctor, doctor, whoever, you know, you want to bring this up too. And he was like, oh yeah, I did want to bring that up. So it's, it's more of being there as a coach mm -hmm. um, and listening. And, and the one thing we always did too was, was take notes. We always took notes during those calls. Um, sometimes we used those interviews from media as our own content on our websites at healthcare. Um, and then other times it was just there to make sure that somebody wasn't being misquoted. So having been on both sides, I fully expect that that APR person would be on the call. That's a really great answer. We have actually don't receive, I mean, we haven't covered that topic a bunch of times, but the previous times where it's come up, um, we've had kind of the exact opposite response. So it's refreshing and I think speaks to how we always say, Jacqueline, especially um, that this is so yeah. nuanced and it depends on the industry that you're in too. So I'm, I'm Britt, I'm curious. So you have reporters who say they don't want the PR person on the call? Yeah, yeah. we have. <laughs> it's very interesting. And um, one was a pop culture writer. And then another, I believe, was more of an, a lifestyle slash travel slash e-commerce writer. Right, Jackie? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it was Katie, yeah. I believe, Katie Lockhart. And she's like a freelance writer. She does a lot of, yeah, travel. Mm -hmm. 
she felt like it felt big brother-esque and she would rather have alone time with who she um, interviewed. Oh, and same with some TechCrunch people, I believe. Yeah. Maybe said something similar. So yeah, yeah, yeah that, I, that I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure how it's big brother. I think it's, and I think part of it goes to, you know, the, the lack of understanding that some reporters have about PR and some of them look down their nose at PR. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and I always say that, you know, I've, I've long said to people who, you know, shop and you get, you know, people who are in retail or nasty. I'm like, I think everyone in America should work one Christmas at retail. And I think they would shop completely differently. Um, yeah, and I absolutely. think the same goes for reporters. I think every reporter should work at least a year in PR um, and understand some of the difficulties that the job has. Understand. Uh, and, it, and I think it made me a better journalist and a better reporter, but also I've, I've known PR people who have become, you know, personal friends of mine who were great because they can get me interviews. They could get me artwork that I needed or, you know, really help me kind of shorten my time frame, uh, you know, to getting what I need. That's not everybody, but for the most part, I think, you know, having that conduit, um, and especially if you're dealing with bigger companies, um, once they realize you're friendly and, and again, you're going to still ask the tough questions and you're still going to report what needs to re- be reported. I think overall, most people think as long as you're fair and giving me a shot to have my say, we're good. Um, and I'm not sure why a reporter would feel reluctant to have somebody else on the call. One, it's another set of years. Two, it's somebody may bring up a topic that I hadn't thought about. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. And three, maybe there's something else there that may be an interesting angle for that story or a future story. So I'm I'm not sure why there's such a reluctance to that. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. I do too. I love- <laughs> it's um, nice I think to that's be a really refreshing that. answer. Yeah. And, and listen, I think you you ultimately, and I know for me, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical person. I'm a journalist. I've covered a number of different categories, but when I would be sit on those calls and listen to the doctor. I learned things and mm-hmm. I heard things and that, that again would seed ideas for maybe going back and doing content on our own that would run on Ooh. our websites and are in, in, inside our health agency, um, come up with different questions. Maybe I'd go back to the reporter at some point and say, listen, you know, the doc mentioned that is, would that be something you'd be interested in talking about in the future? Not necessarily for this story. But it made me more of an expert. And and I think during COVID that became, you know, people would ask, you know, family members and friends would ask me questions and they'd be like, how do you know this? And I'm like, well, I've got our infectious disease, the head of our infectious disease department on four or five calls a week. You know, yeah. I'm listening to this over and over again. So you're, you're learning stuff. Right. And it just made me a better PR person because I could understand the topic and made me able to pitch it better. You know what's also interesting about that? Yeah. I mean, you get to see if you're on a Zoom call, especially you get to see how the interviewer is reacting to different things that the interviewee is saying too. And that's, that makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I love the way that this segued. I wasn't expecting, (laughs) um, you know, this topic to come up and also for this perspective to appear. So I'm loving this. Me too. Um, and I feel like we've covered the the, the pitch in enough detail, mm-hmm. but I am curious, are you receiving a lot of emails in a day, Greg? What does your inbox actually look like? Yeah, I, I, there, there, I will tell you there are probably journalists out there that get way more than I do. Um, 
Yeah. But, you know, from, from a standpoint, I mean, I may get 40 or 50 a day. Um, and some of them, the subject lines are so obviously not connected to what we do. It's just an easy deletion and we move on. Um, so, but I think, and I've been in this job about, uh, 14 months. So the volume has gone up. Um, and we've, and part of the reason I was brought in was we, we they were looking to re- refreshing the brand and, uh, increase engagement and things like that. So I think that has worked. And as such, you know, more people find you, um, whether through social, uh, or through, you know, the various, uh, media gathering uh, agencies out there. So it has gone up more and more. And then the thing I think I've seen go go up more has been pitches that just have no relevance to me, Um, which is part of the reason why I tweeted what I tweeted, because um, that was something I know when I was in PR, we we just looked to avoid. Um, And again, for us as a health system that was targeted geographically in an area, um, you know, we had our list that we would send things out sort of the spray and pray thought process, but we knew that list was very focused geographically and it was relevant to the people um, and to the journalists that we were uh, you know, trying to reach. But most of the time, you know, we, if we had bigger stories or bigger news, or it was, um, you know, like say breast cancer awareness month, we would go to, we would reach out months in advance to specific reporters and say, listen, what are you working on? Let's have a conversation. You know, we've got some potential interview subjects, whether they're patient stories, whether they're doctors um, that we can point you to. And we would start that, you know, at least 60 days in advance um, just to get the reporter thinking, um, you know, about what's going on. Because, you know, they're going to write about, say, again, Breast Cancer Awareness Month being October. If we if they can tell us in August, well, here's what we're thinking. We have to set up interviews. We have to find time. Doctor schedules are very busy. Um, so you got to find time. And some of those interviews would take place two and three weeks before um, the story was going to run uh, just based based on schedules and timing. So by the time we hit that awareness month, story was done and ready to go. We weren't scrambling. So it, it's part of that was pre-planning and understanding. Um, you know, I, I, I sort, sort of chuckle now, especially this time of year when you have Mother's Day, Father's Day graduation. Um, yeah. you know, we're, we're a trade publication, so we work further out, but I get pitches, you know, a week before mother's day, you know, are you doing any mother's day stories? N- no, <laughs> I, I, one, I'm not. And two, even if you are trying to reach the consumer media, you're late, you've missed it yeah. and you've missed it bad. So it's, you know, it's understanding that audience again, you know, from a retail standpoint, we're way out, you know, I mean, right now you have retailers planning, you know, tying the bow on plans for fourth quarter and starting to look at next year. So, you know, you've got a six to eight month window and consumer media, you know, a- operates like that. They're usually a quarter or at least, you know, three months ahead of where they're going to go based on their deadlines. So when I see things like, you know, do, are you doing a one, what's hot for Mother's Day the week before Mother's Day? And I'm like, this is going nowhere because you've mm-hmm. missed what is the typical turnaround then with like, let's say the story that was pitched to you that eventually went live with the, with the coffee brand, was that like months before you actually covered it? Cause you had already your calendar planned out or how does that work? So for us, it's, it's, it's different. I, well, it's a little interesting for us because we've got sort of, we're, we're playing to two masters. One we've got, we still do print. We do seven print issues a year. And then we have our website, which is updated daily. So something like the coffee story was a little more now. Um, mm, there was, okay. you know, that, that interview with the CEO, the, the coffee was about to go into Whole Foods. So it's something that's happening more now. 
Um, but we have it. We we still do, you know, a content calendar every year that outlines different topics and different things we're going to be covering in a month. Um, so, and I think content calendar. A, a September <laughs> issue has has a coffee report. So Perfect. if somebody came to me now and said, "Hey, listen, you know, I see you got coffee report in September. Let's start having a conversation." And it might be a little early right now, but I would appreciate it and then say, "Yeah, what do you have?" You know, and that's something I can tuck away in a folder. Um, because I've got a folder for everything on my on my Google Mail, um, and then so when I'm ready to turn the coffee, I've already got people lined up, or or at least start to talk about ideas of you know what trends are happening in coffee, what the specific company maybe is looking to push. Typically, if we're doing trend stories, we're looking to have position people as thought leaders and not have them give us a sales pitch on how great their company is. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's all a matter of timing, and the the longer you're in this business, you want you you can under, you have to understand. Um, you know, and sometimes it's publication to publication of, of, of how, you know, their lead times work. And, and sometimes it's a simple email, you know, how far out do we need to be? Where is your editorial calendar? Cause I, now I'm looking all over the site and I can't find it. And quite frankly, uh, I haven't used the editorial calendar since my internship days, but I, they yeah, are useful. Jackie, that's a great question. And since I never <laughs> looked for it, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. And find it. Um, I, I, it's actually, if you have an email of mine, I think I have it in my signature. Uh, oh, my shoot. Yeah, let me look at that really quick. I'll, I'll pull up our email. Um, yeah, I was just reading. Somebody tweeted recently about, like, don't underestimate the value of a editorial calendar and it to be honest it felt like a blast from the past but it's cool that it's still a thing sounds like it's really relevant with trade publications then right i think for trade um because you know print is still a big deal in trade um Mm -hmm. so you know i think that still works and actually i what i what i just did i went to our website if you go under the more tab and then go to about us advertise yep um, you should be able you'll oh. see advertising store brands magazine and then download the media kit and marketing planner. There it is. And I think that should get you there. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So yeah. So I think for us um, again, because we're, we're seven times a year, we've had other, we've got sister publications that are monthly. So you plan out topics that you're going to write or special features that you're going to have in, in issues. Um, and that's where the web is so valuable though, because on a daily basis, whether it's breaking news or other news that is more now, we can use the web um, to engage our audience that way um, daily, keep them up to date, and then use our print uh, vehicle for the broader stories. Great. What made you cross over to the dark side from PR to journalism? Um, well, initially, the first job I had in uh, PR was back in the the mid-90s, I guess, and I had come out of college um, came out of college in 1993 in the heart of a uh, rather nasty recession. Um, took me about a year to get a full-time job in, uh, in in weekly newspapers. I worked for a weekly newspaper chain at Nassau County uh, on Long Island and did that for a couple of years. And it was a great training ground. A um, lot of news, a lot of local politics, a lot of controversy. So really a good training ground. Um, but then got... I really developed a good relationship with, with the head of the marketing and PR department at one of the local hospitals. Um, and she had somebody leave and she called me one day and said, listen, I think the guy's name was Seth. And she's like, Seth's leaving. Um, would you be interested in the job? And, and she would hire only journalists. She didn't hire PR people for the PR job. She hired journalists. 
Um, because Makes sense. Yeah. You felt they journalists had a better understanding of what media wanted. And at that point, we weren't emailing anybody. This was 1996. Um, so there was no web, there was no email, there was no um, social media. So it was the old fashioned phone calls um, and, and faxing things to people. So, um, so, and at that point it was better money, better hours, better benefits and an interesting step. So I thought, why not, why not do this? And I think, you know, in the early days of your career, it's a good time to kind of test the waters on different things and not just get trapped into something. So I did that for about a year and then had an opportunity to go to a, uh, a B2B, uh, outlet in Nassau County, did that for a couple of years. Um, ultimately, fast forward to the job I had um, more recently uh, at Catholic Health. Um, I had worked for a B2B publication for about 15 years and just watched the way the company was evolving. And we weren't evolving fast enough in the digital world. Um, we Our business was still good, but it was starting to shrink. Uh, and some of the dollars that were being spent by uh, the product suppliers in the housewares industry uh, were being shifted, but they were being shifted to more of a direct-to-consumer or advertising-to-consumer model. And that was something that really we couldn't compete against because, again, as a B2B, our readers are the retailers. And the company just wasn't evolving to a point that I thought they're going to last. An opportunity came up. The same woman, actually, that hired me back in the 90s was at another health system, um, and she and I had stayed friends and contact for many, many years. And when I saw the job, I reached out. She was like, oh, my God, great. They were building a whole new centralized PR team for this health system uh, wow. and brought me in. So it was more opportunity, more me worried about, you know, am I going to lose my job here because this company's shrinking? Um, and so in 2019, I made the shift to PR and healthcare, not knowing what was coming the next year uh, with the pandemic. Uh, but it was a good move for me. Um, and again, and I think I, I learned so much, not just about how to deal with crisis management and things like that, because we were going through something that, you know, nobody was planned. Nobody had any plans for. Uh, but it just gave me an opportunity to do something a little different, sharpen some different skills um, and, you know, learn something as I was, you know, I'm in my early 50s. So I think it's good to have multiple skill sets because you just don't know um, where industries are going to go. Yeah. Yes, very true. <laughs> um, what do you think about this? Is so another transition, but what do you think about AI and and how it's impacting what we do? You know, what's funny. I I I've done things long enough and been a journalist long enough to be cynical about almost everything. Um, and I look at AI and I look at how people sort of ramped up AI, and now there's this sort of retrenchment of, oh my God, do we really know what this is? And I think we're, we're in a case where as, as a society, if you will, we've made the mistake of rushing to judgment without knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, So from an AI standpoint, man, I listened, I read stuff, I listen to experts and I gotta be honest with you, I still have no idea. Um, (laughs) And, and I just think, you know, you know, and I almost equate it to the way social media was, um, when Twitter and Facebook really came into our lives in 09 and 010. Um, and I was, I had then was starting to work for uh, a division of AOL called Patch, um, which was a growing uh, oh, I remember company Patch. of hyper, hyper-local websites. Um, and initially we were using social media as a way just to promote the stories we were doing and then realized that wasn't doing anything and had to really 
figure out a new strategy. So we really used it for engagement and things like that and, and how to connect with people more so than just say, you know, read this story and click. Um, so, but we didn't know. So I think AI is another case of we don't know. Um, and I, and I just think if it can truly learn, that scares me. Um, and I don't know if it scares me, but it worries me because, um, again, machine learning machines do things that humans can't do. Um, and it's funny, I just, I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson, he was on CNN a week or so ago. Um, he's very comfortable with AI and, and he thinks there's a lot of benefits to it. And he's a hell of a lot smarter than I am. Um, so True. I thought, oh, it's interesting <laughs> to hear his point of view. And he, you know, he, but he talked about the computer and how computers have allowed humans to evolve from a technology standpoint in ways that we couldn't because computers can do things that the human brain can't. So he made me feel a little better, but I just think, you know, it's one of those with AI better, better to be third than first and learn from everybody else's mistakes. Because I think if you really screw something Mm -hmm. up, it'd be bad. That's good advice. That is really good advice. And yeah, also really good advice. (laughs) Um, for folks who, uh, I've been hearing a lot about, I've heard a few experts say it's not AI that's going to take over your jobs. It's the people who know how to use AI. And at first I was very like against this whole, for example, chat GPT. I was like, I don't even want to try it. It took me probably a month to finally try it after everybody that I know was using it and raving about it. But I was like, I can't. And then I just started to try it out. And I mean, it is a good, it is a good tool to bounce ideas off of, or, you know, figure out a new way to rewrite a subject line or a headline that you've been racking your brain around for weeks and you kind of need a new perspective. But yeah, I'm not saying that I use AI to do my job, but yeah, um, I've been trying your comment, Greg, about um, you know keeping things fresh and building your skill sets resonated with me because, and I immediately thought of AI and how I'm trying to maybe get into that more myself. So that was a, a nice little reminder. Yeah, good. Thanks. I like Brit, how you're like, I swear I don't use AI. <laughs> why? Here's why AI, I just thought it was funny the way it kind of went on about AI. And then after all that, you're like, but I swear I don't use it to do my job. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think I would get terrible a terrible response rate if I used it to send pitches. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely be been like, curious. I yeah, I've, I've tried to just for fun and like write me a pitch about this. And I have found that the pitch quality was very low. It reminded oh, me gosh. of the pitches I might have written in college before I really had the nuanced. Uh, it's still learning. It's still learning. It's still, it's, it's still, in, it's, it's in baby school learning. still. Um, but yeah, I've definitely like, I will admit to using it to editing a sentence. That's as far as I've gone with mm-hmm. it. But it is nice and when you get stuck. And I sadly don't have an editor with me at all times or ever. Um, so it's nice to be like, Hey, this is, I worded this weird. Can you help me figure out how to word it better? But other than that, we'll just see what happens. I I like your idea of being like in third place and letting other people figure it out for me and I'll just follow along. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think it's, it's interesting because I mean, look at the car industry right now. Um, Mm. you know, Tesla has been the one out there with electric vehicles and they've been driving innovation and, you know, and I look at, 
somebody like Toyota, who's sort of sitting on the sidelines and hasn't done a lot with electric yet. Um, well, I think Toyota, this is a personal opinion. I have no idea if this is the truth. That's fine. I almost think, you know, Toyota's made really good cars for a long time. And I almost feel like they're just sitting there waiting for everybody else to make the mistakes. And then they'll fly in at the end and have to spend a lot less in research and development when the technology is perfect. I think and, you're right. And I think at some level, AI is kind of like that. It's like, you know, tread lightly, but build off the mistakes of others. And 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 I almost feel like, you know, again, I well, I was at a conference two, three weeks ago when somebody was trying to explain AI. And honestly, I, my eyes glazed over because <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. And he was such a proponent of it. I'm like, this is not a sort of middle of the road uh, discussion. This is why this is great. But I'm like, nothing's that great. And if, you know, yeah. because it's, you know, we've seen things in history that have been like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. And five years later, everybody's running from it. So um, again, we sometimes don't learn from our mistakes. Yeah. Um, as a driver of a Toyota, I agree. Yeah. yeah and I've got, <laughs> I've, we've had Toyotas forever and, you know, they're great cars. And I mean, I had a, I had a Camry that I put 200,000 miles on. And, yeah. and I, when I traded it in, it was still running great. It was just, I wanted a new car at some point. So. Yeah. That's where I'm at with my Corolla. It's almost 200 K miles. And I'm like, wow, I could just run this thing. Well, I can't run it to the ground. It would probably outlive me if I tried. Yeah. Um, it's true. <laughs> but yeah, I like that. I like that metaphor. That's really wise. Um, we kind of skimmed over the tweet, but I feel like you kind of mentioned it. Um, I'm going to read the tweet that I found of yours, if you're okay with that. Um, and then I figure we can kind of transition. Okay. Anyway, I'll read the tweet first. So your tweet said, I cover the world of retail, more specifically the private brand side of retail. Yet today I received a PR pitch related to the hotel and hospitality industry. Why? Um, hashtag PR fail. Um, I think we talked about this quite extensively that you tend to get a lot of irrelevant pitches. Um, kind of wondering, opening it up, are, are there other things that you notice in terms of patterns that PR people get wrong about? your coverage or that you just kind of face palm at um, that you wish they would stop doing? Uh, yeah. And I'll give you an example. I got one almost an hour ago um, about acupuncture. <laughs> and, Great. You know, and I'm like, and I, and I, I almost deleted it. Then I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to save this because if we discuss this, I want to bring this up. Um, Perfect. And, and it's from a PR firm that I know, you know, that I've heard of, and I probably have done some work with at some point and I'm not going to say who, um, but but clearly this is a pitch that that is just you know and there there's a male merge to it and it's just like why would you send an acupuncture puncture pitch to a retail book um, either you, it's just lazy you're just trying to hit a number I don't know and and I think the the spray and pray thought process is one that that is frustrating to most journalists um, and and again I don't get the volume of emails that folks on the consumer side get. Uh, but it's just, it's just, and that's, and every once in a while you just, you, you know, maybe I'm in a little more of a sour mood or I'm busy and you see your email flash and you're waiting for an email from somebody else. And then that comes in and you're just like, come on, you know, I mean, I, I know I, the, one of the companies I worked at in the past had a hospitality magazine, hospitality in trade has a ton of magazines. You know, you could probably send that directly to 20 or 30 different, different titles and get good response to it. And this is just, you know, it's all, it's sort of that. And, and I, I'm, I hate to use the word lazy because it's got such a negative connotation, 
but it, but you're not serving your client. And if you tell your client you sent 1500 emails, but you got three responses, you're not doing anything. Send it to the, send it to the people who are going to respond and, and ultimately give your client the coverage that they need. Um, and this, and this at some point, you know, and I, and I don't do this and I, but I know that this happens is, you know, when you see a PR firm constantly just kind of spamming you, you red list. And maybe yeah. you miss out on a story someplace, but for the 99 times that they just send useless stuff, it just stays out of your inbox. Um, and that just, that's a bad way of doing business. Speaking of that, have you blocked any email addresses or anything like that? Like I said, I don't block a lot. I may just, and because we do our email through Google, I just click it spam. And then, and most times, I mean, Google does a pretty good job with this. Um, I just don't see those people anymore. And they're, you know, and, and am I missing something at some point? Maybe. And I think that's part of my concern that, uh, you know, they may have a pitch somewhere down the road, but, you know, we're, we're busy and as everybody is, and it's just one less thing I've got to worry about in, in a very crowded inbox. So, um, so, you know, just for me personally, I'll just, you know, click this as spam and then that's it. It's done. So. I was curious before we even had the conversation, Greg, just, it sounds like you mentioned the coffee company um, and the PR firm, you know, that was a story that you wouldn't have come across otherwise. And, you know, that's important to you, it seems like, except you don't want to be spammed. Um, so you're happy to miss anything from those kinds of PR agencies. Um, and that makes complete sense. But how else do you get your news? Your industry is so niche. And I'm curious to know where you kind of understand what's what's happening and the trends yeah, that you should um, care about and write about. Yeah, I, I think there's there's sort of multiple ways. One is somebody who's pitching me directly and is and is kind of understanding what we're writing about and it's and it's a spot on pitch. That's one way. Um the other way is just we we do a daily troll of the wires, business wire, PR news wire. Um, and look for things. And sometimes we'll find individual company info. Sometimes it's retail info and sometimes it's bigger trends where, you know, a lot, there's a lot of companies out there that do um, consumer facing reports and things like that, that talk about broader retail trends. And we kind of narrow those down to what we cover. Um, so that's, those are a couple of ways. Um, the retailers we deal with all have obviously PR people. They do um, really good work. And and again, they're probably the best who I deal with right now, really zeroing in on what we cover. Um, and I'll give you an example, like at Kroger, um, you know, Kroger is a, a massive grocery store and they've got, you know, thousands and thousands of products. And, and over the years, they have built a really strong um, private label uh, and private brand assortment. And that that is right now really growing, obviously, with everything going on in the economy. But they'll pitch us on private label. They won't pitch us on a new line of Coke or Pepsi products because they know that's not what we're going to cover. But they will pitch us on a new line of Coke products if it's a Kroger exclusive. So they so they really understand who they're talking to and they really direct those um, the pitches to us. The other thing that those PR people do is, is most times we're going to them with interview requests and things like that. So they really, really help us get to the right people get the answers we need. Or sometimes the company's like, hey, we don't want to talk anymore about that because there's privacy issues or they're now want to reveal too much, you know, from a competitive standpoint. That's okay too. I mean, we get an answer, we're good. Um, so that's where where the PR folks at those companies are really valuable because it's, we have the questions and they're, they're the facilitators. 
I think that's a good segue. You mentioned Kroger. Um, so every episode we ask a journalist who in the industry is really killing it in terms of collaboration and doing all the right things. Um, so I wanted to give the mic off to you, Greg, to basically show the world because, you know, we're a worldwide podcast that everyone listens to. <laughs> we're very popular. So right. we're going to go out to billions of people. Um, no, but in all seriousness, who do you want to give a shout out to that you think does a good job in the industry? So I, I think across retail, there are there are multiple people and multiple retailers. And again, the bigger companies, they go hire the good talent and, and they do a good job. Um, I think from the standpoint, and this is a company I've dealt with for, for many, many years um, through the days I was covering housewares and, and up into even now, um, there's a, a small, I'll call them a boutique uh, a PR firm up in Boston um, called Cure Communications. Um, run by two women, uh, Jen Gear and, and Connie's going to kill me because I can't ever pronounce her last name. I think it's Swaby. Um, but they've been partners for a long time. Um, they focus, they tend to focus on the houseware side of the world and, and home products. Um, but they do a great job of understanding what you need as a reporter. Um, they, and, and over the years they have, and we, again, there's a, it's the relationship. It went from a business one to more of one that has become um, more on the friend side, but but one of the things that they've always done a good job at as is understanding that if we were going to the houseware show in March, which is the biggest event in the housewares industry, we would start talking in November and December about what their companies that they represented were going to bring to market, and we all did it under the guise of you know it's not for publication. We were sort of sworn to secrecy, if you will, uh, until we were going to run the stories. But that planning ahead and understanding what our deadline needs were, getting to us early, um, offering up interviews with key personnel in those companies, walking through the booths at show to see all the products and, and getting a sense of that. Um, they did a great job at understanding my needs. And I know even talking to other companies and I've referenced and I've given them as, you know, other companies have come to me and said, you know, a good PR firm and I've sent some you know, companies to them um, and they do a great job in the consumer world, too, because I see a lot of the products they represent, um, you know, in Shelterbrooks and things like that. Um, again, not a big company, um, been in business a long time, did some really uh, unique things to kind of survive the pandemic. Uh, and they do a great job and they could probably other firms could probably learn from them in terms of how they work with media, how they un they take the time to understand what media needs uh, and really serve their clients well. So gear communications up in Boston would be uh, my shout out of the day. Cool. That's my favorite part of the show. Yeah. Thanks right. for everything, Greg. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Greg. My pleasure. This was fun. <laughs>